Hello, welcome to Great Books and the Good Book. I'm Jonah Weiner, a second-year student at Shivat Chovavet Torah with a degree in religious studies and a passion for integrating Torah and world wisdom. I'm Chagai Reznikov. I'm a Rebbe at Chovavet and the director of community learning, and I'm just fascinated by the intersection between Torah and literature. In this podcast, we deal with the encounter between Torah and literature in a variety of ways. Sometimes we're going to explore the questions uh, and ideas posed by great works and see what answers the Torah can bring to bear on them. Other times we're going to look to works of literature to see what light they can shine on our interpretations of Torah. In this episode, we're going to dive right into the white-hot core of English literature, the bard himself. We are going to identify a structure in Shakespeare that adds possible interpretive richness, and then we're going to look and see if that structure exists as well in the Torah, and we're going to see what that structure can do for our uh, interpretive strategies. The most obvious place to start with Shakespeare is The Merchant of Venice. I have a whole series of thoughts about The Merchant of Venice, and Jenna, I know that you have you have similar thoughts. Um, let's start off with just reading the passage. The passage is the famous hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, and so on passage. Uh, it is from Act 3, Scene 1 in The Merchant of Venice. Um, and we're going to start earlier than the speech, and we're going to end slightly after the speech to give some context. Shylock is talking about his enemy Antonio, and this is what he has to say. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heeded mine enemies. And what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why revenge? It like still gives me like shivers to hear it. It's so powerful. <laughs> Typically, people choose to quote, end this quote at, if you poison us, do we not die, before you get into the revenge issue. And the reason, I presume, is that it's uncomfortable to talk about revenge. Maybe you want to say a word, Jonah, about why we chose to read further into the speech. For sure. As we get further into our topic, um, I think it'll become even more clear. But what I find so powerful about the continuation of this is, first of all, as you said, this is like in the mouth of our most villainous character who, you know, instigates all of the problems of the play, who, who you know, wants to do this sort of horrific, violent thing. Um, and I think, especially as Jew is reading this, what we want is for him to have been this secretly sympathetic, totally wonderful guy who is just oppressed by circumstance uh, and is sort of lashing out, but, but is really, like, lovable. Uh, and first of all, that's that's not the case. Uh, he's, he's a monster. It's really, it's he is written to be monstrous. Uh, in so many ways. Uh, but second of all, I think I actually find him much more human in a sense that the way he ends this speech is not on what I think we would have seen as this beautiful, virtuous, oh yes, and you've been so awful to me and you've done all of these horrible things to me because I'm a Jew and what I'm going to do is is turn the other cheek. 
to really put a Christian point on it. Um, no, what he says is your, your whole society that you, that you have built, uh, where everyone is doing all these awful things to me has shown me what the only course can possibly be to, to these horrible insults and attacks on me. It, it's gotta be revenge. That's my only real choice here, uh, as a product of the society he lives in. And I think that that really emphasizes the point that this, uh, and something that we were trying to show, which is that this speech, which is really a paragon of equality and of humanism. Essentially, we are all humans. The same biological factors and physical factors that affect you affect me. And that's true regardless of color and creed. It's totally embedded in the middle of this play. So Shylock, who you're right, is a monster. And his, his anger and his venom is expressed within this humanism, but is not lost in any sense. I'll just say my thesis about this piece, and my, which I think covers the entire Merchant of Venice, and maybe we can consider possible other reads and, and so on. My feeling is that somebody who really believed that Jews were a problem the way that Shylock is a problem could not have put this sentence into Shylock's mouth, because as Shylock appears, he really does appear subhuman. And so the fact that he claims humanity is almost out of character, except for embedded in the way that Shakespeare embedded it. And I have to say, my feeling is that this piece is Shakespeare actually saying his own opinion about what Jews are about. And at the end of the day, it actually sheds light on the entire play of The Merchant of Venice, which is a terribly anti-Semitic play. But at the end of the day, I have this feeling like Shakespeare is actually giving the people what they wanted. And by the way, anti-Semitic plays were, in fact, a genre that existed at the time of Shakespeare. There's something, it's like when, uh, you know, Robert Altman makes a very low quality or, uh, uh, you know, lowbrow film or something like that. Like, some of these plays were actually made for the purpose of making money and ha having a livelihood. If you're a playwright, that's what you have to do. And I essentially, I, I, I feel like Shakespeare is actually poking fun at the audience to some extent. If you came here to hear an anti-Semitic play, here's what I really think is, is, is actually going on. I mean, I, what I think is so interesting about that is, is accepting that read of what's happening here, then I think Shiloh, the end part, the part we sort of continued quoting, uh, is so much more powerful because then Shylock's response is, and like also all of the sort of horrible venom that, that I, Shylock, have in this play are a response to your violence towards me, right? You've constructed this horrific society where the popular thing to do is clamor for these anti-Semitic plays. Like, wh what am I supposed to do and be? And like, as much as I would want Shylock, you know, or, or Jews in such a horrific, oppressed situation to be these like, transcendent magical people who are better than anyone could possibly be what what his speech is essentially saying is you've created a society that brutalized me what what is my response supposed to be yes correct <laughs> i have given over this thesis to many people because i think it's brilliant <laughs> and <laughs> as i might <laughs> and i find that people tend to disagree with me about this and the answer that they give me as to how this amazing little humanistic fragment got in, embedded into The Merchant of Venice is as follows. I've heard lots of people say lots of things, but this is the dominant thing I've heard them say. At the end of the play, Shylock becomes a Christian. And since he's going to become a Christian at the end of the day, and therefore one of the good guys, we need to create enough sympathy for Shylock that people aren't totally horrified that this awful person became Christian. But I have to say, I find that totally uncompelling. 
Shylock really is an awful person, and it's hard for me to believe that anybody who at the end of this play is thinking like, oh, Shylock, he's not so bad. Look, he became a Christian. Uh, just very hard for me to understand that that's what anybody's reaction is at the end of the play. In fact, Shylock is so disappointed at the end of the play that he's not able to get his, his pound of flesh, and Christianity is actually imposed on him. It's not like he's convinced of the error of his ways, and therefore he becomes a Christian. He just, Antonio demands of him become a Christian so that he doesn't end up in court for attempting to kill Antonio, and, and essentially that's the that's how he becomes a Christian. I agree with you. That, that read of it basically has to, has to say, oh, this is embedding so much of a, of a sense that he could be redeemable, uh, or he's human enough to become Christian. Like, there's something interesting, I guess, in that thesis there. But I guess you sort of have to overlook the part where he says, if I could have my, my daughter dead but have my money back, that would be fine. I would prefer that to this situation. I, I, I don't know how, I mean, maybe it's just clashing with my modern ear in a certain way, but I find it really hard to see him as a, a redeemable person. Uh, with with the, all of the other context about Shylock we get. I think people feel like an interpretation, like the one that I offer, is kind of wishful thinking. I don't want Shakespeare to be an anti-Semite, so I'm like grasping at any straw I can in order to like reverse the entirety of The Merchant of Venice in order to solve the problem of Shakespeare being an anti-Semite. Um, I'll just point out, though, that I don't think this is the only place where Shakespeare does this. So I'll refer listeners to the end of Taming of the Shrew, Act I guess Act 5, Scene 2, the last speech that Katharina makes there, I think that you can find other places where Shakespeare actually sort of lifts the mask about thinking something different. Although, I guess in The Taming of the Shrew, people could accuse me of not wanting to believe that Shakespeare is a sexist. Uh, I actually do believe that about Shakespeare, so I don't know exactly where to go with that. I think Shakespeare is somebody who listens to the human psyche very, very carefully and really does have a a close, close read of what people really believe. Great. I also think that it's it's tough because I, I sort of want to have a unified theory of, of Shakespeare in some sense, right? I want him to not be an anti-Semite. I want him to not be a misogynist because I enjoy all of these plays and all of that stuff. And so I want there to be this one consistent character quality uh, throughout him, not an anti-Semite, not a misogynist, and check those boxes. Uh, whereas in reality, it, it, he might be more like, I think, basically every person I've ever met in my life, including myself, where you have some problematic views and some unproblematic ones. You have some beautiful views and some some really horrific ones. Uh, like Shylock, only the reverse. <laughs> right, exactly. Like Shylock, only the reverse. And so it, it literally just might be that, you know, he had a bunch of anti-Semitic views and, and within there a deep humanism as well. He might have held to the misogynistic views of his time and his society but also been uncomfortable with some of that. Like, he, he could also just be a complicated person. Right. It's interesting. That's an argument that actually I didn't express, but sounds at least more compelling than the other argument. <laughs> I still think that there is, I don't know, such a deep recognition of the equality of Jews and also the, the way that Jews um, are educated through Christian society that it's hard for me to read this particular play in that way, perhaps in some, in some other cases. Totally hear you. This actually is a transition into our Torah discussions because there are places in the Torah where within a matter of lines, there actually seems to be a contradiction or an undermining of an idea that at first was expressed as though it was the will of God entirely. 
Let's have a look at some of those things. Let's start with Divine Kaf Gimel, Pasuk Tetzayin through Yud Zayin. I'm going to read it in Hebrew, and then, John, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to translate. The Torah says as follows, Lo tazgir eved el Adonav, asher yinatzel elecha me'im Adonav, imcha yeshev bekirbecha, bamakom asher yivchar, be'echad sharecha betov lo, lo tonenu. Shall not turn over to his master a slave who seeks refuge with you from his master. He shall live with you in any place he may choose among the settlements in your midst, wherever he pleases. You must not ill-treat him. Now, I want to just stop and just point out an important, what to me is an important point, um, before we get into how this undermines essentially other, other ideas in the Torah, which is just in terms of emphasizing the importance of this pasuk, the term Bamakom Asher Yivchar, wherever he pleases, may, is an incredibly resonant phrase in the Torah. It almost always refers to the Mishkan or to the Beit HaMikdash, the place where God chooses. The only time in the entire Torah where it says Bamakom Asher Yivchar, referring to a person choosing a place, is here, referring to, in reference to this slave. Now, we're actually familiar with the biblical view of slavery. Um, I would say that in general, the Bible does not prohibit or even frown on slavery like, as a general rule. Right. I absolutely agree with that. The, the Torah seems to create rules that either limit or channel slavery in certain ways uh, versus other ways. But if you come to the Torah looking for a wholesale condemnation of slavery, you're, you're certainly not going to find it. Now, you might say, like, well, God takes the Jewish people out of slavery. And there does seem to be a a hesitation in the Torah, or even a condemnation of the Torah, of Jews being slaves. Although, by the way, that is also legal in certain contexts. But the Torah itself is quite open in many situations about non-Jews being slaves to Jews. Uh, it doesn't seem to reject that in any kind of moral sense. Right. I mean, I think that, if anything, the, the point about being particularly unhappy about Jews being enslaved, uh, if anything seems to cut against it because it's saying that there's no problem fundamentally with slavery, there's a problem with oppression of Jews, which, which is a very different point. So let's talk about how this law of not returning a slave to their master once they've run away undermines the general Torah uh, position on slavery. What I'd like to ask you to think about is Dred Scott. Now Dred Scott is this horrible Supreme Court decision shortly before the Civil War, which determined that if a slave ran away to a free state and then was captured there in some way by, uh, by slave hunters, they could actually return, they had the right of returning that slave back to his home or to his original slavery in the South. From that moment on, from the moment the Dred Scott was, the Dred Scott decision was made, that, uh, the free states were no longer an asylum for slaves anymore. Freedom was no longer across the border, and you actually had to go all the way up to Canada, where uh, Jonah, that's where your home <laughs> territory is, in order to be free of slavery. Right. So what's what's so powerful about this Torah, and then and then fascinating to think about it in context with all of the sort of pro-slavery or at least supportive of slavery as an institution took him in the Torah, is that what this is saying? Is on the one hand, there's this beautiful image of the Jewish people as, as this, you know, either northern states before Dred Scott or, or Canada to, to the world, right, of a place in which slaves can run away and the place that they choose to live in that community can be like, you know, the Mikdash in some sense that's, that is so moving and beautiful for me. Uh, and at the same time, 
you you would think that 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 would go along with a broad ethos where there there is no slavery. You would imagine there would be psukim like, oh, just like you were slaves, there shouldn't be any slavery at all in you know among the Jewish people or something like that. Uh, but that's that's actually not the Torah that we have. That's not the Torah. So this pasuk seems to cut so deeply against it. It creates a, such a deep sense of cognitive dissonance to hold the, these psukim together with a broader ethos of slavery. So either you have to consider, either this this is limiting them in some way of saying, oh, the only way in which you can have slavery is a one in which there is some limit. That if, if the slavery is somehow so awful, the slave runs away, then it's, you know, then they, they have this, this sense of freedom. But that creates this bizarre situation where the onus is on the slave to run away from abusive slavery. It doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense. Or the Torah doesn't really believe in slavery. And this is some larger value principle. It's, it's hard to read. So that's, that second one is actually the way that I read it. I would say, like I said about the, about the Merchant of Venice, it's hard, the same way it's hard to believe that somebody who believes all of the rest of the Merchant of Venice could actually write that hath not a Jew eyes, hands, and so on. It's very hard for me to understand that the Torah, which actually supports and embraces slavery, would then put, insert a law which instructs you not to return slaves to their masters. Because this actually undermines the entire institution. Now, it doesn't destroy the institution because only some slaves are going to be able to escape, but it certainly encourages slaves to try to escape. Um, and it puts the onus on whoever the slaves run away to, even other slaveholders, to protect those slaves and to make them into free people. So it seems to me, my read would be that slavery in the Torah and the non-abolition of slavery in the Torah is a culturally conditioned claim. That is to say, it was too radical for God to uh, instruct the Jewish people to totally eliminate slavery. However, the Torah text itself embeds in itself uh, a, a hint of the Torah's, what I'll call the Torah's real feelings towards slavery. That is to say, that the Torah opposes slavery and wants to make, such, wants, and the ideal is for people to be free. I have a huge difficulty with that. I, t I I totally hear it, particularly after our Merchant of Venice conversation. And at the same time, I have this big difficulty with saying when these two things seem to contradict one another, which they which they obviously seem to in terms of ethos, in terms of vision for a society, the way we read it is that one is, is Hashem's real will and the other one is not. And therefore, we should say... That what this, what these psukim are doing is trying to undermine and supplant this other one. That this is actually what's going on in the Torah, and all of these other things, all of these other halachot, all of these other details that we get in the Torah that seem to deal with slavery, they're a concession to our, to our, you know, weaker nature. That we were in a living in a world of slavery, and therefore we had to. Oh, but God's real will is actually like later on and buried in these two psukim, sort of hidden until we were at a place where we could really accept it. I, that's a tough vision of the Torah for me. So that's similar to what you said about Shakespeare, that Shakespeare is a complicated person, the Torah is a complicated text, and actually has multi, all kinds of feelings. By the way, I can be opposed to all kinds of things and still support or allow for legislation that might allow those things to go forward, right? I mean, this is one of like the major issues in politics today of how much compromise are you going to do, right? Um, so, that, right, there may be a difference in terms of a fundamental view versus a compromising position or something like that, which I guess is what I'm trying to argue for. I guess what I struggle with is it's it's so hard to read the Torah sometimes with, with that in mind, because then 
it's how could you possibly compromise with slavery? You know what I mean? How, how could you possibly accept the notion that, that slavery is tolerable? So I have all kinds of answers to that, and I, uh, it's on my mind, and I'm not going to argue it for right now. At this moment, let's just look at one other example of where this happens, and I'm going to make the exact same claim about this, and you can argue with me about the... <laughs> you can argue with me with, with the, same, the same claim. Before I go on, I just want to put in a, there a trigger warning for people who are um, sensitive to conversations about sexual violence. The next piece is about rape, and it's not pretty, and it's just worth, if this is something that's going to really be challenging and painful for you, uh, consider maybe skipping ahead. The piece that we're talking about is Devarim Kaf Bet versus Kaf Gimel through Kaf Tet. And the, the scene is a young woman who is engaged to be married goes out into the town and she is seized by someone and raped. The Torah tells us that the penalty for this is that both the rapist and the victim are stoned. And why? Because the victim didn't scream loudly enough to bring help, bring someone to her aid in order to, for her not to be raped. And therefore, her rape is actually a kind of quasi-adultery. For me, with my modern sensibility, this is a shocking uh, thing to, to come in contact with. Um, the Torah goes on and says as follows, if she was actually out in the field and she's raped, then we don't penalize the victim, for the following reason. I'm going to read it in Hebrew. This is Pasuk Kafvav, line 26. You shall do nothing to the girl. The girl did not incur the death penalty, for this case is like that of a man attacking another and murdering him. He came upon her in the open, though the engaged girl cried for help, there was no one to save her. Now, it would appear that a basic read of this would say, so why doesn't she get the death penalty like the woman who did it in town? Well, the very end of that, she could have called out, but nobody would have been around to help her anyway. So we have no reason to think that there was some kind of quasi-adultery in this uh, interaction, right? If that's the case, then there's an entire passage in the middle, which is really unnecessary in terms of explaining what's going on here. And the passage is the passage about murder. Can you read it one more time in English? For this case is like that of a man attacking another and murdering him. Okay. Now, why is this case in the field more like a man attacking another man and murdering him than the case in town? Murders happen in town, they happen in the field, they happen all over the place. My contention is that this insertion in the middle here is actually a, another case of the Torah lifting the mask or tipping, the, tipping its hand and telling us whatever is going on here, whatever laws we're putting in place in order to keep a stable and reasonable cultural continuity with what the, the Jewish people know, the truth is that rape is a violent crime like murder, and nobody can say it any other way. So at once, I, I, f- I feel this is an even stronger proof text for, for your case, and I, fi- I find it more compelling. I also find the, the gender piece of it really fascinating, that the way it exonerates the woman in this situation is by analogizing her to a man in another circumstance. Yeah, a man and another man, right? right. In other words, instead of it being a woman raped by a man, it's a man who's murdered by, by another man. Exactly. So... 
just that piece of it already, I think, is, is a fantastic proof text that it says, okay, let me make this, like Hashem feels like it's saying, let me make this more like a situation where you will have greater empathy. I, that, I, like, wow, already. So I, I'm really interested in that, that aspect of it. My concern here is, is that, to, to your point earlier about compromise, is that then what, what, what we're saying is that the Torah is willing to compromise with a society that would, that would kill a raped victim in order to preserve cultural continuity. That would be a sacrifice Hashem would be willing to make for taking the Jewish people on this, this ethical, spiritual journey. I'm amazed that you're making this argument because the alternative that seems to be what you seem to be championing, championing is, no, the Torah really thinks that in most cases we should kill rape victims, just in very specific situations we don't keep them. Which is very, very challenging for me to believe as well. Right. I... Of course, I agree with you. I'm. Hmm. I guess a point I, I think is important for me to raise here is that I feel it is very important. Which, of course, we're both doing this conversation, and it's just important to make explicit. I think it's always appropriate to approach the Torah with a sense of humility that we are doing our best to understand what we are reading. We're doing our best to, to understand and connect to to what the Torah is telling us. Uh, and sometimes we can miss the mark in small ways, sometimes in enormous ways. You're right, like my theology is incompatible with a read uh, where God is saying what I want you to do is kill rape victims. So I can't, I don't know how to read this. I just want to suggest that humility can work in two different directions as well, right? I feel like the trend, it's funny, we were, you and I live in a very um, limited slice of the modern Orthodox world, but I feel like the trend in a religious America right now is is almost a, uh, a fundamentalist trend. That is to say, to take the Torah at face value and totally assume that that is the way that we should see the world. And I think that there is an, a level of arrogance in reading when you do that as well. In other words, I'm not looking to undermine every single shot reading of the Torah as possible, but when I do see a sense of distinction or uh, undermining like this, uh, it puts me in the mind and the mindset that um, that other ideas are possible, and that what can I say? My argument from trying to read the reverse, I think, holds true. That is to say, it's more believable to me that somebody who actually believes that, in the absolute sense, certain things are are immoral, can compromise and allow those things in other contexts. It is easier for me to believe that than to believe that somebody who doesn't think that there's any kind of immorality present would then insert or back down from their position. Right, and I, I'm with you, and I, I, I really take your point about the, the cultural context that, that we're sort of steeped in. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been in conversation with, with pious Christian friends about it, and my refute to, you know, very shot reading of the of this horror has been, oh, but... Like, let me show you what Chazal think about this, or, oh, if you, if, if you could read it in Hebrew, like, you would see that actually it seems to say something else. I think that I would like to say, and then I'll give you the last word, um, the argument that I'm trying to make is as follows. The Torah doesn't always tell us what its true goals are. So we don't know, in all cases, what the Torah is actually looking for. However, the Torah does tell us occasionally that things are not as straightforward as it seems. And at least at those moments, and maybe, and I think truly at other moments, it behooves us to consider that what appears in front of us in the text may not be the ideal. It may still be some kind of 
part of some kind of passage. I don't know for sure, and I certainly don't argue that based on those convictions, we should start editing the Torah and cutting out mitzvot and cutting out halachot. But I do think that we should take it as a possibility that the Torah itself is not necessarily written for all generations to necessarily read exactly the way that that first generation did. There is, I, I do believe, there is Idea. a spiritual or legal goal that the Torah is trying to reach. I can't say it in every case because I don't see evidence for it in every case. But in the cases where I see the evidence, it speaks to me and asks me to look and think possibly about play, what other goals there might be in other places. I feel bad because you gave me the last word, and I would love to use it to make like this slam dunk argument, my last rebuttal. But actually, sort of in thinking about your, your final point there, I'm a little more convinced than I thought I would be coming into the conversation. I, I think in the places where, where there is such a clear and explicit statement, I, I think it's hard to read it another way. Um, maybe this leads me to somewhere a little bit more moderate between, between our two views on this one. It's, it's definitely an interesting approach to it. For me, the theme that has been most resonant about this is, is being willing to approach it with that, with that sense of humility. Uh, and, and in that spirit, I think that while the Rambam's argument for this position might not have convinced me, uh, yours has brought me around a little bit more. Thank you for listening to Great Books and the Good Book. I hope you enjoyed the show. Special thanks to Yeshivat Chol Torah and to Max Hollander for editing our show. Hope to see you again next time.